Welcome to the Red Letter Christians podcast. Red Letter Christians gets our name from the Bibles that highlight the words of Jesus in red. And we're aspiring to live as if Jesus meant the stuff he said. We know that the loudest, most prominent voices representing Christianity in America haven't always been the most beautiful or the most faithful voices. And we know that the way we change the narrative is by changing the narrators. We are committed to amplifying the voices of people who are dedicated to Jesus and to justice. How much longer will justice be? When well, hello, everybody. It is uh, a wonderful night, and I'm so glad that you could join us. I'm sure some of y'all are uh, listening to the recording afterwards, but thanks for everybody that could join us for the live stream tonight. Uh, as folks trickle in, you may know that at Red Letter Christians, we've done a bunch of these faith forums. We we don't do them every month, but we do them many months. So whenever it just feels right, and we've got something we need to talk about. So we've had faith forums on abortion. We've had faith forums on immigration, uh, war, the environment, uh, racial justice, all kinds of things. And a lot of times they've been pretty weighty issues that matter to us because we're trying to love God and love our neighbors. Uh, uh, but tonight I, I wanted to do something a little bit different, um, which is we're, we've, we've called this one the science of joy, or we might even say the science of joy and wonder, because I've got two folks that are conversation partners tonight that uh are just so fascinating to listen to. And I'll uh, give them a little introduction and I'm going to start our conversation. But as you're watching, you know, in the chat or in uh, the uh, comments on the, the different uh, platforms, you can, we're monitoring those. So if you got a question or comment, throw it in there. Uh, but first, let me introduce Dr. David Brad Bradstreet, who I first knew because he was my astronomy professor at Eastern University, and he um, not only is an award-winning professor, uh, but he's, and he's an astronomy rock star. You've got, um, you've got a, a com. is it a comet that's named after you? No, it's, it's, a hunk of, it's a hunk of rock called an asteroid. <laughs> an asteroid, of course it is, and uh, forgive me for not... Um, Remember Sorry, with my with my luck, Shane, it's going to be the one that hits Earth and kills everybody. Lord have mercy, I hope not. But uh, Dr. Bradstreet's done all kinds of great work. He's also written this book, Starstruck, that we're going to talk about seeing the Creator in the wonders of our cosmos. So this is awesome. I've just torn this book up, and I I don't know if I told you this, Dr. Bradstreet, but um, I have a. I've written this new book, Rethinking Life, and I have all kinds of shout outs to you. And, and we're going to talk about, you know, the wonder of it all. But um, it's about the wonder of life, you know. And and uh, so thanks for joining us, man. It's great to see you. My pleasure. Great to see you, Shane. And our other guest tonight is uh, Dr. Jim Wilder. And he is um, uh, has a Ph.D. in psychology and has done all sorts of great work on neuroscience. Um, and uh, loves Jesus, and he's also a um, the thinker behind the life model, a lifespan guide to being fully human. Um, I've heard him give a bunch of presentations. Sometimes you've got your 
um, your your kind of brain model with you. You might have that, Jim. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I, that's what I was hoping. But I just got this book today in the mail: "Escaping Enemy Mode: How Our Brains Unite or Divide Us." Uh, this is Jim's new book that he co-wrote, co-authored. So we'll talk about that a little bit. But first, you know, as we ease into the conversation, you guys, I am. Um, I mean, I think this is aging out a little bit, but there, you know, when I was growing up in the evangelical church, there was sort of this distrust or suspicion or um, uh, complicated relationship between faith and science, right? It was almost like you didn't want to learn too much because it might make you question uh, your faith or something like that. But both of you, by by your life and your writings and your work, um, you you really... Uh, kind of model a different relationship to science, which it seems to me like the more that you've you, you've uh, learned and studied, uh, the more all you have for God. Uh, so let me start with you, Dr. Bradstreet. I mean, you tell in your book your story of how you were just ran out in the yard as a kid, fascinated with the cosmos um, and, and where that took you. So talk a little bit about that relationship between faith and science. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I think that it's not aged out yet. I think that there are still a lot of Christians who uh, are fearful of science. I think that uh, certainly this pandemic and the way the government and the so-called scientists have told us how to handle things has only increased that fear, uh, uh, this, this mistrust of so-called experts who tell us things and then a month later will say, well, no, that wasn't right. We're going to do this. So, you know, I think that distrust is, is uh, partly well-founded and partly out of ignorance. Uh, for me, I've always loved science. I, as you say, I, when I was a, a, a little boy, I asked my parents for telescopes, which they uh, hesitatingly bought for me because they didn't want to buy me a chemistry set because they knew I'd blow up the house. So <laughs> they figured that a telescope was relatively safe. <clears throat> and you know, I'd stick it out the window, let all the heat go out of the Massachusetts winter window there. And, and uh, I was just fascinated. And I there was never any issue about, you know, I knew God made all of this. And I, I, I really think he invites us to understand it. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's been a real joy. For, it's been a joy for me to get to know his universe better. Mm. Well, why don't you why don't you dig a little deeper on that, Jim? Because I, I, you know, everything I've I've seen from you has that same sense, and I, I think there's a lot of folks that are um, really seeing that the, the more that we learn about how um, uh, miraculous our bodies and our creation is, the more uh, um, reverence we have for for the God that created it. So talk a little bit about your relationship or how you've navigated that faith and science thing. Yeah, so while Dr. Bradstreet was getting his telescope, I was getting my microscope. That was a big thing when I turned uh, 14. Oh, man, uh, everything went underneath there to, to have a look at that. So uh, uh, yeah, I wanted to know how the how the human body and how life worked. You know, I mean, how does this stuff uh, come together? And for me, part of the, the wonder was that, uh, you know, God being behind this kind of creation knew from the beginning he was going to have to inhabit a human body. So, um, you know, he was going to have to make a, a human brain run correctly. And, uh, yeah, I remember at, at age 13, I was drawing diagrams of the 
the 12 cranial nerves and learning all those sorts of details because I was just fascinated. You know, somehow this is supposed to work together, right? And, you know, I lived next to a hospital, and so it was obviously it wasn't working right for some people. And then some of the people I knew were, you know, a little crazy too. So I was like, you know, okay, there must be some someplace that all comes together. And, you know, theology seminaries did move out of universities about uh, beginning of the eight, uh, last century. So it's been about 120 years of alienation. Um, and, uh, you know, it was basically, I think, out of determinism, you know, it's like if, if there's laws to things physically, uh, that must be all there is to it. And that determines how life works. Mm. Um, uh, but to look at the brain and go, you know, this is actually unity. There's synchronicity here. Something greater than us is paying attention to us and we can pay attention in return. Uh, and, and, you know, there's a way of engaging those two things together and that's where neuroscience or my field neurotheology comes together so mm -hmm. if if we learn how we should live from the bible uh, we learn how we learn that from the brain and so you put those two things together and it's how we learn to be uh you know bigger better uh, more spiritual people than you know we would have ever known we could have been so that's yeah. that's where I every time I see a new discovery, and I love to read science. I read it every day, um, and I love to read theology uh, and what God's saying. And I read that every day. And, and whenever they match, I go, mm, "Bingo! This is it." Awesome. Well, you know, I'm I'm living in on the north side of Philadelphia, and there's a lot of concrete. You know, there's a lot that kind of feels like it's suffocating the the. Uh, earth and the creation, but we've done everything we can to bust up the concrete and we've got urban gardens growing. We've got backyard chickens. We grew kiwis this year in our backyard and they were absolutely delicious. Uh, but, you know, sometimes people will say, well, what's that do, got to do with the gospel? You know, and I remember one particular story where um, one of the young guys in the neighborhood, he was uh, like maybe nine years old at the time or something, he'd banging on my door. And I answered the door thinking there's there must be a, a you know an emergency. I was a little a little worried. And uh and he goes, No, 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 come here. And he drags me all the way down the block to show me a firefly, right? <laughs> first firefly he's ever seen. One of the first we've seen in, in North Philly. He goes, What is that? And I was like, that was a great day for God when God made a bug that's butt glows in the dark. How cool is that? You know, and, and, and then, you know, when the kids started picking their first carrot out of the ground, there's just this fascination with where food comes from, you know? Um, and, and, and so I, you know, I, you talk about both of you in different ways, um, kind of talk about the wonder of how everything works and the wonder of God's creation and uh, Dr. Bradstreet, you know, in your book, you, you drop all of these kind of wonder bombs all through it that the um, the, the tail of Halley's Comet is 60 mile, million miles long, right? <laughs> or this is one. Every second, the sun converts 4 million tons of material into energy. That's the equivalent of 10 billion nuclear bombs. And that we're exactly the perfect distance between... Um, you know, away from the sun, not to burn us all up and not to freeze us to death. It's it's all kind of a miracle. And you you talk about the wonder gap, how we've sort of lost that sense of wonder 
and the marvel of, of God's creation. So say a little bit more about that. I, th- I think that people, I think this, and, and Dr. Wilder kind of talked about the laws of nature. And, and I think people have got this wrong idea about what science actually is and what it can do. And so I think that people think, well, science can explain everything. And that's not what it purports to be able to do. Science is a method of understanding things, but it it can't possibly deal with everything because it can only deal with what you can measure. And there's lots of things you can't measure, like love is a good example. Uh, And yet we wouldn't say that love doesn't exist. But Mm -hmm. science would say, well, it doesn't exist. I can't measure it. So we, we have this feeling that uh, the laws of nature govern everything, and, and so there is determinism, etc. That, that's not what science says. Laws are simply a way of codifying what we see happening. We don't exactly understand very much of what's happening. I don't want people to get this idea that scientists have this, you know, oh, we, we've got it all down. Scientists are just as goofy as normal people. Mm. Now, there's a lot of things we don't understand. I mean, we don't understand what gravity is. We don't know what electric charge actually is. We can describe it, but we don't know what, what is it about the electron and the proton that they have this thing called charge? What exactly is charge? And the answer is no one knows. And yet, you know, we can do a lot of things with it, but we don't, we shouldn't pretend like, well, we've got all this down just because we can use it. I mean, you get in your car, and you turn on the key and off you go. But do you understand everything that's going on inside it? Mm. Or in your brain for that matter. I mean, so I think the wonder gap is more of a realization that we don't know nearly as much as we pretend that we know. Mm. And I think that we as Christians, we don't understand God much at all. And that's always going to be the case for the finite to understand the infinite. Mm. So this wonder gap is something I think we always need to embrace that is it's in in many ways everything is a miracle hmm. well and just one other uh little wonder gap fact for you uh on this is that the sound protective shield around the earth the atmosphere saves us from being hit by 100 tons of small rocks and other debris uh, every single day. Is that right, Dr. Bradstreet? It is right. And, you know, another thing <laughs> Another thing that's interesting uh, about the Earth and the sun and something people don't think about is sound doesn't transmit in space. Mm. Well, okay. So you can't, people can't hear you scream in space. That's from a, a goofy horror movie. Think about why that is. And yet light gets through space. Because of its nature, it's particle and waves, whereas sound is just a wave. If we could hear the sun, that's all we hear. Mm. We are, although 93 million miles away on average, we're still close enough. That's all we hear is the, the roaring of the sun. So God has made it so that we can be close enough to be alive. But sound can't get to us. So we don't have to listen to this, this roar all the time. I mean, it's just the more you the more you think about <laughs> creation, the more wild it really is. Uh, see, aren't you all glad you you tuned in tonight? We're get, we're getting smarter by the moment and having our minds blown. Uh, and Jim, so Dr. Wilder, you you talked. David mentioned love, and um, you know 
the the idea that scripture says God is love. You know, no one has seen God, but but uh, when we love one another, we see God manifest. And uh, and you've talked about not just the 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 science of the brain, but also kind of the mystery and wonder of the brain, particularly um, in how love leaves its mark on the the muscle of our brain. And I'd love for you to. I, I, I talk a little bit about that and how we can see in the brain the difference between suffering where someone feels loved and trauma, which is suffering where someone doesn't feel love or accompaniment or community through that suffering. Well, you know, we're going to start with the brain. We're going to start with the fact that it's born in a pretty disorganized state. It doesn't know how to talk. It doesn't know how to uh, be human, particularly. It doesn't know how to do much more than put everything in its mouth. Uh, but it is already preset to look for a face among all the things. So if you give a, a newborn infant the chance to look at anything in the world, it'll look for a face. And if it can look for a face it will look for the left side of the face. And if it can look at any part of the left side of the face, it'll look at the left eye. And the left eye is where there's about 200 muscles uh, whose job it is to convey how I feel about whatever I'm looking at. And the, so the, when the brain begins to watch this left eye, if there's joy in it, and joy as far as the brain is concerned, means someone's glad to be with me. They're looking at me. They're, they're returning the gaze, you know. So we're looking for somebody who's glad to be with us. And that glad to be with us is what produces attachment. And without going into all the details, if we, if we break down the words in Greek and Hebrew that are translated love in the Bible, uh, the best kind of description of what kind of love they're talking about is attachment love. It's a, a, the Hebrew word would be chesed uh, for the kind of connection of somebody looks at us with uh, kindness, with uh, good intentions, with wanting life for us. So it's, it's a life-giving kind of connection with somebody else that then begins to develop into this. We are really glad to be together, and before very long, we never want to be apart. And that that connection is what we end up calling love. We're, we're now connected to somebody else whose very existence we share. But more importantly, um, unlike computers, <clears throat> which can't organize themselves, the brain organizes itself into the kind of function of whatever brain that's copying. So it's always looking for a mind greater than our own that will tell us who we are and how to live. And as humans, we learn that initially from other humans. But if we're going to just go above average, we need somebody that sees in us uh, potential to be the kind of person we could never uh, imagine being on our own and bring that into existence. And what is God, among other things, but a mind greater than us that looks at us with love and compassion and chesed and attachment and says, I want to be with you. And I will teach you how to be. And you'll do that by relating to me and, and watching how I relate to you. Uh, and this we do with other people. So it forms a, a community that, that's life-giving. Uh, and this we can do with God. Uh, 
I don't think it's because there's a God sensor in the brain. I really think God interacts with every level and every neuron and every part of the brain. And, you know, he's, he's, he's everywhere in there interacting with us. Uh, but it's, a, it's not passive. Uh, there's actually an influence that God gives um, that we can sense if, if we recognize his voice. And so most of what I talk about is teaching the brain how to be human and teaching the brain how to recognize God's thoughts and presence when he's with us, uh, and then watch the effects of that, which are joy. Like, mm. wow, this is good. This is, uh, you know, it's, it's wonderful, and it's certainly not explainable. And, and it's entirely, it's, it's, the brain is always has meaning and look and, and search it for a word. Mm. So we kind of know what we mean when we say we're loved. We know what we mean when we say joy, but the word itself always is smaller than the reality it's trying to capture, and, and wonder f falls into that gap. We, we, we can sense more than we can ever describe or, or more than we can ever explain, uh, but that doesn't mean it isn't true. It just means we're gazing into something much bigger than us. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. And... and uh... You know, when we were at a conference together, you had your brain model and you talked a little bit about um, how you can have that exact same experience. Say it's, uh, uh, you know, losing your mother um, and it can do, leave a mark differently in the brain, right? Then if you're totally alone and um, without any sense of community and love through that process, and yet you can have the exact same experience and feel community and love, and it actually impacts the brain differently. Is that right? Is that is that, did, I, did I get my neurology yeah. theology right? Yeah, I think you're getting back to the question you asked me originally, and I forgot uh, to oh, answer. That's okay. I like the backdrop. Yeah. Which is about the uh, the difference between trauma and suffering. Uh, so um, I'll try to make this very brief here, but here we got a brain sitting in our head it's looking out at us this way if we're looking at the brain but the brain grows up initially prior to birth and hits the top of the head and wants to go farther so it goes all the way to the front and then it wraps around so the top of the brain is actually right here at the bottom that's the part of the brain that contains our identity it's also the part of our brain that people removed when they do lobotomies so you know after that you're not home and you won't cause any trouble um you know, the gruesome thing, they used to do that as young as five years of age for mm. kids that were hyperactive. But, you know, thankfully, we don't do that kind of stuff anymore. Um, but anyway, so this part of the brain right here that uh, says, I am here, wants to answer now, how do I live? How do I act? What is it like me to do under all the different conditions I experience? And so along the way, and I'll break the brain in half, um, Along the way, the, the, the information comes in here, goes around this way, trying to put a, together a picture of what's going on right now. And when it gets here to the top of the brain, which is also at the bottom, but uh, it gets here, it wants to answer the question of, who, what do I do as a relational person? Because the brain is essentially relational. It it's organizes itself relationally. It, it expresses itself relationally. It wants to know... Who am I in relationship to everything around me, including the universe, uh, the, at least as far as we can perceive it? And right in the middle of that process is shared mind. It's a mutual mind state where 
we connect with somebody else. And so when life gets to be really difficult, if someone will connect with us, they help us answer the question of what do we do when things get this bad? And the answer is we go through it together. Mm -hmm. But if no one will share that in the middle and I'm alone, the brain then gets up here and goes, hey, wait a minute, I'm freaking out here. There's, there's nobody with me. No one will share with me. I, I'm alone in the universe. I'm alone with all these things. There's no way I can handle all of that. Uh, you know, this is going to be bad. Um, I can, you know, I hope it just stops. And so the, if we have someone who shares our sufferings or our difficult experiences with us, uh, and that can be uh, a, a spiritual person, uh, you know, uh, like the uh, presence of God and, and the saints uh, that we feel is with us in this time of need, or it can be a physical person that says, you know, I'm just going to be with you. I'll, I don't know what to do, but I'll hold your hand. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll go through this together. The brain still suffers. In other words, it hurts, mm -hmm. but it's not traumatized. It says, okay, well, now at least I'm not alone in the middle of that. And so that's why very often people talk about being able to, to tell a trauma to somebody gets you out of that being stuck alone uh, kind of uh, experience. Uh, but very often you don't even, once you're connected to other people and you learn how they think, you can actually avoid being alone by thinking to yourself, you know, if my friend was here, if my brother was here, if my mother was here, she would understand, she would want to be with me. And that's enough to convert uh, something from being trauma to being suffering. And uh, when it's suffering, we say, well, we know how to go about uh, handling this situation. And I was telling you, Shane, um, that in the last uh, year, just over a year ago, my wife died from leukemia. And I remember being in the hospital with her. Uh, at the moment when she said, you know, I'm dying, we have to turn the machines off. Uh, and she sat back in her bed and she said, I know how to do this. And there was a smile on her face because she had been through a death with her mother. And her mother had just expressed the presence of God in a way that brought joy to the room. Everybody who witnessed her, her death said, oh man, there was, I've never seen anything like that. And, and knowing that, uh, and she was dead in under 24 hours after this, this point. She just sat back in her bed. She said, I know how to do this. I'm here. I'm going to do this as someone who knows God. And it was very suffering, suffering kind of moment for me. It was very, very hard to watch. And at the same time, it was one of the most profound experiences uh, for me to, mm. to go through. And, um, you know, it's, it's that kind of confidence that doesn't say this is going to be easy. It isn't going to hurt. But it, we know how to live this kind of thing. We, we know how to experience this and stay relational with God and others. And that's what we learn from each other as well as from our spiritual lives. Wow. And first of all, thanks for sharing so personally and deeply. And sorry for your loss, but also sharing with your joy that um, there's, there's something else uh, on the other side and welcoming her home. and. Yeah. Um, and, and let me add one other comment about yeah. joy, because people think joy means happy. Um, when, when my wife uh, knew that she was going to die and she looked at me, she had joy because she was glad I was there to, with her. Mm -hmm. And I was glad to be with her because I wouldn't want her to be alone at this time. But were we happy? Mm, no way. 
So joy is this, we are glad to be together, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's a happy time. But sometimes when nothing is going wrong and we're glad to be together, it's like, woo, happy time. And, uh, and that's the kind of joy that, you know, we'll seek. It's the only thing that babies will seek on their own, and it makes a workout for the brain. And so right here, these are the joy centers, and we can actually scan your brain and find out how much joy you've accumulated across your life by the strength of the signal in these two parts of the brain right here in the joy centers that are also our identities. The science of joy, y'all. That's what we're talking about. And I just learned that we've got a joy section of our brain right back there. How about that? Uh, I like that old song, uh, this joy that I have, the world didn't give it to me and the world can't take it away. And it's one of those songs. It's kind of a, a song of resilience and resistance these days, you know, because there's a, uh, I think something that a lot of folks on the left and the right share in common is that they've lost their joy. You know, and there can be so much going on in the world that it just kind of suffocates their joy. So I thought, you know, it's a great conversation on the science of joy to have right after an election, because I'm sure people have all kinds of different, <laughs> different feelings going on. Um, but I want to talk a little bit more about this with both of you, because when I, you know, I, I spent some time with the missionaries of charity in India, working with Mother Teresa and the sisters. We worked in, uh, I, I spent some time in the home for the destitute and dying. And I mean, it's a pretty somber name. And every day we would go into the streets, we'd bring people in and they would die. We would hold their hands. Mother Teresa had that same sense that you're sharing, Jim, that that um, we know that there is something more powerful than death. And so the home of the dying was actually a place that was holy. As I think about it, I get like, you know, my hairs pop up. And um, But when you go into the morgue, it says, I'm on my way to heaven on the wall. And when you turn around, it says, thanks for helping me get here. And my friend said it kind of felt like we were travel agents from this world to the next. We were just helping people make the transition. But one of the things that I want to hear from you all is that Mother Teresa often didn't have much technology. You know, and there were people that died, some folks that critiqued Mother Teresa. I'm not one of those, but I think there's people that offer a, a valid critique of Mother Teresa that some of these people didn't need to die if she had just had more IVs or simple technology that could keep people alive. And I began to see that there's kind of this this um, tension right between our progress and is our goal just to keep people breathing? Or is our goal for people to feel love and life and joy wherever they, they are in this moment? And um, it was something that really, um, I walked away with feeling that tension sometimes. You know, when nurses or doctors worked in the home for the dying, some of them were just like, ah, we just need more technology. You know, we need a few more things. So um, th there, there's got to be some kind of uh, integration of, celebrating progress and what science has done, but also sort of that innocence of um, some of these things have just made us more and more scared of death and more and more obsessed with our own uh, ability to, you know, um, keep people alive. Some of our progress is digress, you know, all of our virtual screens and everything, we end up being really lonely people. So <laughs> with, with folks that appreciate technology, but also the limits of it, I wonder, David, if you want to start, uh, 
just talking about that, you know, a, a little bit more of how you think through that, you know, the, the tension there. Yeah, I want to I want to just go back to what Jim was saying about yeah, joy totally. and happiness, that that what the, what that triggered in my mind when he, I'm picturing this horrendous scene in the, you know, with he and his wife, you know, about to part ways, at least earthly. And it brought to, to mind Hebrews 12, too, if you'd let me read it. it Absolutely, yeah. Where the writer of Hebrews says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Mm. And so there you have that, that beautiful contrast between happiness. Jesus was not happy to go to the cross, but for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Mm. I really think that's a good depiction of the difference between joy, which can get us through uh, horrendous times. And, yeah. and uh, it's not it's not a function of happiness. It's a, it's a joy that God promises us, not happiness. Yeah, in terms of technology and isolation, holy smokes, I don't really know that I need to say much about that. I mean, when we went from being in person to being on Zoom classes, uh, my students freaked out. I mean, they, they enjoyed being together at least virtually better than nothing. But it was really interesting, Shane, when we came back the following semester, after half a semester of being on Zoom, my students did not miss a single class. They were so enthralled to be back mm. in person. They just loved being together. Mm. This, this learning online business may be good for grad students, but for undergrad it's it's it doesn't make it. We need to be in the same room. We need to be with each other. Uh, this is better than nothing, uh, but it doesn't hold a candle to people actually being in the same room. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Jim, you want to say, Doctor Wilder, you want to say any more about like uh, kind of the 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 uh, challenges of technology, even as they offer some real you know possibilities too. Uh. Yeah, the, what we're ending up talking here about is the difference between wisdom and and just doing everything we can think of. Um, and so, you know, the, there's a point at which, uh, you know, very I hear very many people say, well, I know you could uh, uh, keep me alive with chemo uh, another month maybe, but I would have such a terrible life that I would not be able to relate to anybody or you keep my body going well, the brain has been shut down. And so I've got no mental faculties anymore. And you might be able to sustain me for months, years, who knows what, but uh, that's not a state I want to be in. And so what we're talking here about is valuing life in some way, but life is also eternal. And so how much of it do you spend here in the body? And there's a very peculiar story about Jesus uh, on the cross. Um, and it's not usually read this way, but as a um, uh, scientist, uh, you know, looking at the text, people who die on the cross die of suffocation. They have a hard time breathing. And so uh, it says at the end that, Jesus said, unto your hands I uh, uh, commit my usually translated spirit. The only place that word is translated that way. Uh, but he actually could be more likely translated breath. 
And it said he cried then in a loud voice, and after that he breathed no more. So the way I read the text myself is that Jesus said, you know, I can force myself to keep breathing right now. I'm not going to kill myself, but God, if you want me to keep breathing, you're going to have to do it because I'm going to stop. And so he stopped breathing, and that was his, his last right there. Uh, I think that's something we should be learning about, uh, you know, uh, when do we just commit our hands uh, and our lives to God and say, you know, I've, I've, I've taken this baby as far as I can. If you want to keep me alive, that's okay. Um, but I'm not going to keep trying to do it out from my end. And, and that kind of wisdom rarely comes into the medical uh, discussion. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, is, have we done everything theoretically possible? Um, you know, Jesus clearly didn't do everything theoretically possible to keep himself alive uh, for as long as possible. And at the same time, he didn't end his life because he thought it was miserable, mm-hmm. but he let God make that decision for him. And that's where I would like to go with the discussion of Mother Teresa. Uh, we should certainly uh, look at resources to help people on the medical front. Uh, and on the other hand, we should look at teaching them to have a strong enough dialogue with God that they can actually talk about things like the end of my life with some understanding with, you know, God's going to lead me through this and help me find the, the right timing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, as we think about like what we can do to bring joy and life and wonder into the world. I was thinking of this ser- sermon from um, Reverend Otis Moss, the third, he's a dear friend and been a part of red letter Christians. Uh, I heard him preach this sermon, speak life. And uh, in the middle of the sermon, he stood one of his friends up and he started just showering it with compliments about how good he lo- looked and how much, um, uh, goodness he brings into the world. I mean, you got very, very specific. And he said, this is what just happened. As I spoke the words, they floated into the air. They made their way from the outer ear to the tympatic membrane. And then his co- cochlean nerve and the hair cells began to move back and forth to determine the frequency of the speech that I gave him. That frequency sent a signal to the cerebral cortex. Uh, Dr. Jam, I don't know if we're getting all this right, but cerebral cortex, like a computer, then began to release dopamine into a system. And when it released that dopamine, increased his immune system and might have given him 30 more seconds to live. Uh, So you can prolong your life by speaking life, uh, prolong someone's life by uh, bringing joy and wonder and uh, dopamine into their system. Uh, that that was the point of Otis Moss's sermon. <laughs> and he said, you know, when you look at spending time with children, spending time looking at the moon, maybe Dr. Bradstreet, like, like um, it puts dopamine in our system and it makes us healthier human beings. And then he also had a flip side of that, which was the cortisone Christians, you know, the ones that are speaking negatively in the world. And when we lash out at people, it hurts them, but it also hurts us. It can put dopamine in the system of the person who's insulting or writing a mean tweet about someone. So I don't know if all that is perfect neurology theology, but I I wonder, as we think about what it looks like to be life-giving presence in the world and people that have the joy, you know, fruit of the Spirit in us, um, what advice you might have. Uh, we can start with you, Dr. Wilder, and then uh, I'd love to hear from you, David, on like just, just how we can bring some life and joy and wonder into the world. 
Yeah, well, I'll just say that you the, can, you can the chemist, Otis Moss's, uh, the, the chemistry uh, is a little oversimplified, <laughs> but nonetheless, the general <laughs> principles are true, even if the chemistry runs differently. It's much more complex than uh, will fit into a sermon. But the earliest emotion that's recorded of human being is in Luke 144, when it says, when the vo voice of your greeting came to my ear, the babe in my womb leaped for joy. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we have that as... Uh, you know, the, the start of life. Uh, and then uh, when uh, John is writing scripture, he says, I have much to write to you, but I'd rather not use paper and ink or Zoom or something like that. But I hope to come and see you and talk to you face to face so that our joy might be as large as possible. And we have Jesus saying that, uh, I mean, Paul saying that, what is our joy or crown of boasting before the Lord at his coming? Is it not you? You are our glory and joy. And so from the beginning until even the arrival of Christ, from one end to another, the Christian life is filled with the fullness of and the seeking of joy, uh, the gladness to be together. It got Jesus through the cross. Um, it got people through hard times. Uh, and Jesus said, these things I have spoken to you that my joy might be in you and that your joy might be the fullest joy possible. And so we live in this environment in which what Jesus did was to create joy. Uh, and what we are to do with each other is to create joy. And when you do that, we do uh, boost the immune system. We boost everything that's life-seeking about us to grow and prosper and, uh, you know, that's the kind of influence when, when I get done, um, I want to be able to hear something like uh, what uh, Paul said to Philemon. He said to you that uh, I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Mm. And if that could be what's on our epitaph, that's what it says on the wall as we leave. You know, mm. We have refreshed the hearts of the saints by the joy of being glad to be together, even when they were sad. So when we weep with those who weep, we rejoice with those who rejoice. We're just fulfilling what the brain needs to uh, be full of life. Beautiful. Dr. Bradstreet, you, you got any uh, thoughts on how we can bring some life and joy and wonder into the world? I think a good, a good way to do that is, is what Scripture says, to go out and look up into the heavens. Mm. Take a look at what God has created, but don't stop there. You know, he's created this universe. It's beautiful. And yet the creator of the universe came and walked on this planet. It's the only thing probably that distinguishes this planet and the whole universe is that the creator walked here and died here. And so thought so much of his children, us puny little humans, that he came here and sacrificed himself to bring us home. If that doesn't bring you joy, I don't know what will. To, mm -hmm. to think that God himself would come down and become one of us to sacrifice himself for us that he, he would give up everything just to save one person. What, what more do we need to know about this great God? That to me brings great joy, that mm. he, he values each person, no matter in what kind of disposition. I think of, you know, a person struggling on the street or a businessman who thinks he's made it. 
God sees them all the same and would die for each one. And I think we need to look at our fellow uh, humans in the same way. And it should bring us great joy that God loves us that much, that he would send his only son. And the more you understand what he sacrificed in that, I think the more joy that will bring you. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Yeah, people, Thanks don't feel, people don't feel particularly loved because you had a good time on their behalf. But if you suffer on their behalf, you're willing to enter into their difficulties. People understand that they've been loved. And as human race, we should understand that too. God's entered into our suffering in order to let us know we've been loved. And uh, we get to do that for others. Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, I, I know that uh, there's probably a lot of questions that uh, folks still want to ask. And I got to ask a lot of mine and Dr. Bradstreet. I got to ask him if he thought there were uh, extra um, terrestrial life out there and all these, all these questions you want to ask an astronomer, but um, you can uh, totally throw those in the chat or the questions. Um, and we're, we're going to wrap up in a minute, but uh, Dr. Wilder, you know, this new book that you've written, um, I was, when I saw the title escaping enemy mode, I thought of some of the criminologists that I've, uh, read that said our brains are kind of conditioned whenever we're under attack or we feel threatened, our brains are sort of conditioned to respond in uh, a couple of ways, um, typically either fight or flight. We're either going to attack or try to get out of there. Um, some theologians suggest that, that that exactly what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount is teaching us a third way a way that we can throw off the systems uh, of, of retaliation and the spiral of violence. Maybe that's even what I, w- I think Jesus was doing when he interrupted the execution of the woman in adultery and wrote in the dirt a little bit and then told all the guys, you know, let one who's without sin cast the first stone, interrupting kind of our our patterns of violence. And I don't know if that's what you're getting at on the, in this or if you have other thoughts, but, but tell us a little bit about the new book and, you know, uh, how we can escape enemy mode and live, you know, lives that are more about love and protecting uh, one another. Yeah, well, the, the brain is uh, built in such a way it easily drops into enemy mode, which means I feel like you're not on my side. And so now the question is, what do I do when I feel you're not on my side? Uh, and the uh, fight or flight is basically energizing that. Uh, you know, I s- studied uh, criminal profiling with uh, FBI guy, and uh, you know, so I'm familiar with with those reactions and and criminal behavior. But uh, criminal behavior is actually generally pretty much run by the back of the brain, not by our identity center. It has very little to do with uh, what's important to me and and what I value. And so if we're able to uh, basically regulate our emotions, calm ourselves enough, and and this is what joy teaches us to do, although I didn't talk about that. Joy is in a high energy state. So after time we have a little bit of joy, we have to quiet ourselves down. So when my grandkids come around, after a little bit of joy, I'm like, can you just sit down a minute? We'll catch our breaths here because we have to quiet ourselves. So that going back and forth teaches us to quiet ourselves and then ask the question, what is it like us to do right now? So uh, criminal behavior is a, is a fear-based, you know, I'm just going to get rid of all the threats. But 
uh, the brain does have the capacity to say, well, yeah, you are a threat, but wouldn't it be better if I brought out the best part of you, the person that God means you to be? And it's very interesting to hear stories of people who are actually talking to um, Al-Qaeda-type people or people who hate uh, them because of their Christianity or any other thing, forming relationships with them and saying, you know, we could be enemies, but I really intend something else. And, and God has given us that potential to develop that. And so when we can see this, we actually create options um, that weren't there before. Mm -hmm. And now Christians constitute statistically one out of five people in the world. So if we could teach all Christians to uh, love our enemies, that is, instead of responding to other people by uh, returning cursing for cursing, but we returned blessing for cursing. We, we uh, said, you know, uh, I know you hate me right now, but that's probably not the best self that God created or has in mind for you. So uh, how about I help you find that? That's being joyful or glad to be with them because they obviously need a lot of help. We'd only have to do it, that for four people each. And we would actually be able to, uh, uh, you know, love the world on behalf of God. But most times in Christianity, we don't practice this. And most of the people who are we're in enemy mode with are actually our family and friends. You know, how often do we just feel they're not on our side because they interrupted our football game? You know, and if we can't do it on those little things, we never get good at it at the big things. Mm -hmm. I was thinking of a story I just heard the other day. Uh, from some of the folks that were in the conflict zone in uh, Israel and Palestine with the Christian peacemaker teams. And, you know, they were kind of buffering a school that was at risk um, the, as the kids were going to school. Some of the Israeli soldiers would make it difficult and create violent situations. And there was one day where the soldiers were coming in, the peacemakers were there. And he said, these soldiers are really very aggressive. And he said, yeah, I don't but... know what, I don't know what made me do it, but, I, my phone rang in the middle of this and I answered it. And then I said to one of the soldiers, it's your mom. And uh, <laughs> he said it was the weirdest hiccup in this situation. And the soldier's like, no, it's not my mom. And he goes, yeah, it's your mom. And he said the whole thing like got really weird. And the soldiers just kind of, you know, um, huffed and puffed. They, they left. And later he said, the guy came up to him, the soldier, they, they, you know, it's a small town and they saw right. each other again. And he said, I don't know why you did that, but it did something inside me. He said, my mom's a teacher. And it got me thinking, what would I feel like if someone was, was doing this at her school? And I also began to think, what would my mom think of me as I'm doing this right now? And he said, uh, I don't know what made you do that when that phone rang. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. You know, and so I think, uh, but, you know, that that creativity is kind of what we need to interrupt the patterns of violence. Uh, but to put it another way, a, attachment love is what always interrupts enemy mode. Mm, mm. And so he actually activated the fellow's attachment love because uh, and I've, I know stories of this being done with uh, uh, incarcerated prisoners where they got started to get violent and uh, they mentioned the prisoner's mother. If mm. the person knew the mother's name and said, your mother so-and-so, you know, and by just thinking of her, it de-escalated the, uh, the enemy mode violence. So, yeah, there's good science behind what he did, uh, even though he had knew none of it at the time. 
How about that? How about that? Well, y'all, we're we're winding up. I'm going to give these guys a last word, but um, in, in case you're just tuning in, I've got uh, Dr. David Bradstreet, who, um, uh, among other things, wrote this wonderful book, co-authored this book, Starstruck, uh, seeing the creator in the wonders of our cosmos. And uh, Dr. Jim Wilder, who's written a, a, a bunch of books. The latest one is Escaping Enemy Mode, How Our Brains Unite or Divide Us. So let me just see if you have any last words or words of send out and benediction, especially as we think of uh, the science of joy and wonder. Dr. Bradstreet, you want to send us out with uh, anything, brother? Yeah, I think in, in reference to what we were just talking about, it reminds me of what Abraham Lincoln said near the end of the Civil War, uh, not too long before he was assassinated. Now, there was a lot of talk about what they were going to do after the war, you know, reconstruction. And uh, Lincoln wanted to basically welcome the Southerners back in like lost brothers. And some members of his cabinet were like, but these these are our enemies. And Lincoln is purported to have said something to the effect of, well, if I make my enemies my friend, have I not destroyed them? And I think, again, this is what partly what Jim is talking about is that, you know, in a, in a, you know, it's a third way. It's a loving your enemies. Uh, you can turn them into friends and therefore you've destroyed them as enemies. Mm-hmm. And I think I think we as as people who do take Jesus's words seriously need to think about that. What what is the third way rather than fight or flight? Is there is there a way to love our enemies in a realistic way? And I think that, you know, again, relative to the universe, your God made it. Your God is making it work every day. He isn't in the Bahamas reading a newspaper. He's sustaining the universe for you to bring you home. Hmm. And so that love, that enduring love, infinite love, um, take joy in that. And someday we'll, it'll be a big part. Hallelujah. Thank you, brother. Dr. Wilder, closing words for us, brother? Yes, there's a very limited number of uh, neurons in the brain, uh, and they can calculate a very limited number of options. And it's not very hard for the brain to go, hey, with the time and energy I have, I can't do this. But if you just look at the universe and the vastness and the way it interrelates to each other, you just have to know that the number of possibilities that you can't even think of are so vastly more. And you look at the Bible and you realize God never did things twice the same way. This vast potential for far more than we could ask or think or even imagine is available if we uh, tune our minds to what God might want us to do. So the most hopeless situation from a human point of view is always a long ways from hopeless what God is having to look at it. And, And so Let's look into that, like uh, the passage in, in Hebrews said, let's gaze into Jesus, the author and founder and the fulfillment of all these things, and see what do you want us to know and do under these circumstances, and uh, gives us a chance to be people we never thought we could be. Thank you, brother. Well, what a wonderful life-giving conversation. Uh, I also was thinking, you know, somebody told me our brains can only hold a thousand face recognitions. So when you don't recognize somebody, you don't, you shouldn't beat yourself up so bad. Because uh, although I think your brains probably hold more than a thousand, but uh, I, I keep forgetting people's names sometimes. So now I, I have a little bit more grace on myself. But um, 
I, I hope you all have enjoyed this conversation around uh, the science of joy and wonder. Uh, I'll leave you, you know, with this this thought from, you know, Ralph Waldo Emerson kind of considered what we would do if the stars only came out once every thousand years. And uh, uh, someone was commenting on those reflections and said, you know, if the stars only came out every thousand years, no one would sleep at night. The world would become religious overnight. We'd be ecstatic, delirious, rapturous by the glory of God. Instead, the stars come out every night. So we watch television or binge on Netflix. So tonight, maybe let's turn off some screens, look at the stars, think about the wonder of God's love and the miracles of how our brains and bodies and universe um, is designed by the miraculous creator. And uh, so make room for joy and wonder, y'all. Thanks for joining us tonight. Uh, we'll have other stuff going on. Uh, we have morning prayer on November 1st. We've got book club happening every month. We'll do another faith forum soon. But thanks to both my guests, Dr. David Bradstreet, Dr. Jim Wilder. Thank you all for a great conversation tonight. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Red Letter Christians podcast. Too often, Christians have used our faith as a ticket into heaven and a license to ignore the world we live in. But at Red Letter Christians, we believe our faith is not just about going to heaven when we die, but also about bringing heaven to earth while we live. For more information on Red Letter Christians and upcoming events, additional resources, you can go to the show notes or our website, redletterchristians.org. You can also support Red Letter Christians by giving a one-time donation or becoming a monthly sustainer. Just go to our website and click the red donate button. Thank you for being a part of this conversation and for being a part of this movement.